So we recorded this interview with uh, Michael Fosberg back in February, and I think I think people are really going to enjoy it. Well, it was really enjoyable to do, so I hope that they do. Yeah, and, and we're so grateful. Michael Fosberg came to Ascension in January to perform his one-man play called Incognito, and which has a talkback component, and it was really moving and engaging for the whole audience. And it started quite a movement here in Knoxville, and we are grateful that we actually get to host Fosberg again at the Bijou on Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. With live music. With live music from the Knoxville Opera Company's Gospel Choir, which I've heard so many good things about, and I can't wait to have that play again here in Knoxville and with the live music. I mean, it's going to be a wonderful event. So if you have not registered for the event, you can go online to a southerncityspeaks.org or you can go to the Bijou website. You can register. It is a free event and we hope to see you there. You don't want to miss it so that you become part of this movement in Knoxville. Well, Michael, we are so glad to have you on Becoming Fully Alive. It was just wonderful having you here in Ascension to perform incognito for a large audience of Knoxvillians. And <laughs> and what a what a wonderful time we had with you and Oh, it was tremendous. Yeah, learning your story and um, just more about the work that you do. And, and I'm just grateful that we got to share in it and we're grateful to have you on the podcast. It is a uh, blessing and an honor to be with you and to have been there, uh, to share my story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think for people who were not able to participate in, um, incognito, maybe just tell us a little bit, just a snippet, not, not your whole story, but just a little bit about your story and, and how your own search, your own um, quest for your biological father led you to do this kind of work with dialogue? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I, it is a 380-some page book, so I'm going to condense <laughs> that into a few, uh, few sentences here. But I, as you said, I, it, the, my story is really the... the it was about my search to find my biological father. I wasn't raised by him. I was raised by my um, biological mother, who is of Armenian descent, and an adoptive stepfather who was of Swedish descent. And when I was in my early 30s, they announced they were getting a divorce. And I realized at that time that I didn't know who my biological father was. My mom had never told me any information about him. I never asked any questions. Um, and so at the time, I had a uh, a British girlfriend who <laughs> kind of an interesting mm -hmm. story. And uh, uh, she uh, she encouraged me to um, ask questions of my mother and, and get some information, more information, which I did. Um, she told me his name and where he last lived in the Detroit area. And 
so armed with that information, I went to the library at the time because libraries used to have this ancient device that we used to use to find people. I'm speaking of the phone book for those <laughs> people of older age, older listeners. So we'll remember that was the device we used to find people. And I got a Detroit phone book. I looked up his name. I found four or five listings. I copied them all down. I went home and scared out of my mind. I picked up the phone and dialed the first number on the list. And it turned out to be my, my biological father. I, and uh, I can't believe, you know, I, when you, when you shared that, I could, <laughs> I couldn't believe that you actually got him on the first try. I know. I know it's, it's really remarkable. I have the I ha, I kept the little sheet of paper that I wrote down all the names and numbers mm. on. Oh, I was I was hoping you kept the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like to say I ripped the page out of the phone book as people used to do, but I didn't. Uh -huh. mm. I wrote it down. And I kept that page. Yeah, and mm. uh, yeah, it was. I, I mean, how remarkable is it? The first phone call turns out to be the guy. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, during that phone conversation, as where things are unfolding, he he kind of says to me at one point, you know, there's son, there's a, well, first of all, he said, you know, son. And mm. when he said the word son, mm -hmm. I was just, it, it was as if my chest just opened up. And it was as if my heart just opened up. You know, it was just yeah. such a, it, it, it stopped me in my tracks. It was just so incredible to hear that word coming from his lips and uh and he said you know son there's a couple of things you should know i'm sure your mother's never told you and i thought okay well aside from not telling me about you right <laughs> thought that was the biggie what, what more know, could she have to say what, what else could there be right so uh, he said well first of all i want you to know that um i've always loved you and i've yeah. thought about you a lot and again that was um another moment where I just, I, I, I took a deep, deep pause and, and a breath. And, and then he said, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, uh, I'm African-American. Hmm. And of course I, having grown up in a working class white family and, you know, projecting as white and thinking I was white, this was big news to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then he proceeded to tell me about my family history dating all the way back to slavery and you know great great grandfather who was a member of the 54th regiment in the colored infantry unit and a mm. great grandfather who was an all-star pitcher in the negro leagues and a grandfather who was a genius and the science and engineering departments at norfolk state university are named after him and on and on and i was like whoa 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 can we get back to the black part because i'm still yeah, trying right. to get my head around <laughs> yeah. okay history but what about you know and uh and we, you know, said we'd stay in touch and exchanged information. And I hung up the phone and, um, and that, you, you know, you, you, I, I guess the only way to say it is, you know, you think you, you, you grow up thinking you're something and, mm. and something changes over the course of your life, even, even up to the age of 32, at which was the time when I made this discovery, there were several periods in my life in my identity changed somewhat. I'm speaking of things like uh, when I graduated from college, now I saw myself as a college graduate. Mm -hmm. um, when I became a professional actor, I now, that was a part of 
who I, how I saw myself, who I was. I was a professional actor. And so um, having grown up thinking I was a white guy, <laughs> and then suddenly hearing this news that, whoa, slow down, you're a lot more than that, um, was an enormous shift in how I perceived myself. And I started to think about the ways in which um, people had seen me and would start to see me and um when i started to share the story um just sharing it in this manner um, as i'm doing with the two of you today um people started um you know looking at me different um posing different kinds of questions about um race and identity and um how do we look at ourselves how do we look at other people and it I guess I would say it was then, even early on, before I created the play, what became the play, what eventually then became the memoir, I was confronted with these thoughts and ideas about um, fostering conversations. My story opened up people to have questions about um, topics that are quite often very difficult and uncomfortable, topics about race, topics about identity, topics about um, family history, about family secrets, mm. all of these things. Wait, families have secrets? Ah, <laughs> I, believe we, I believe we spoke about that, uh, yes, uh, in, in Knoxville. I mean, that's that's another, I think, a very big thing about my play. Like, yes, it's about identity. Yes, it's about race. But man, it's really about family secrets and there is not a family that does not have a secret. Right. And so um, what I started to re realize through that and, and, and was this, this opening the door of conversation. And I came upon in my travels and as I was doing this and as this was unfolding, I came upon this um, theory a proven theory by a Harvard sociologist by the name of Gordon Allport. He wrote a very seminal book back in the 50s called, um, uh, oh, now, of course, I can't remember the name. I'm having a senior moment. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter what the book's title is. The, the theory is called intergroup contact theory. Mm -hmm. And it's the proven theory that by sharing our stories across majority and minority populations we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different and once i got a hold of that and started to dig into that i i realized the power of dialogue and the power of conversation and the power of my sharing my story with people whether it was in performance or you know just telling it again, like I am with the two of you today, or whether it was through book form, um, it had the power to open people up and, and engage in um, fruitful, meaningful conversations. Yeah, it's quite a journey. It yeah. is quite a journey, you know, and I, I know I said this after the first performance when you were here, but I, I was so struck by um, what a spiritual experience um, your story is. And I mean, I, I cried throughout the whole first performance for sure. I mean, just tears just streaming down my my face. And I I think that that's one of the things that does build a sense of common uh, commonality 
and sharing of stories is understanding our lives as spiritual, you know, yeah. like that, that conversation with your dad, for example, yes. I mean, oh my word. And like your heart burst open at hearing him call you son. Yes. I mean, how is that not a spiritual experience? Yes. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is. It, indeed it is. It's, it's extremely spiritual. It was, um, I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing because, you know, you, you saw you're crying through the whole first time you saw the presentation. And, and I had, as you recall, I had a very, very emotional um, response. Uh, yes, yeah. Both show, both performances were very emotional for me. And um, again, there may be a lot of different factors <laughs> that play into that, but it is a very spiritual experience um, for me to tell it, to yeah. experience it, to live it, to share it. And, um, and I also find that it opens others up to that, yes. to, to sharing their own spiritual experience, whether it's um, of you thinking about your own family, your parents, whatever it might be, or uh, Billy, um, the sermon that you gave the following day, talking about your own personal experience with guns a very delicate and divisive topic but talking about it from a personal standpoint i mean all these things are so deeply embedded we talk about storytelling a lot mm -hmm. in in your work in my work in 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 business in 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 corporations they talk about storytelling how important it is every corporation every business is telling a story yeah it's the story of I don't know the the wing nuts that they manufacture or the cars that they produce or the produce that they harvest or whatever it might be and we relate to that in different ways um by sharing our personal stories with that and so I I find that very as you said very very spiritual. Well, and you know, I think that there's something too even before I share mine there's something about receiving your story mm, yeah. as mm. deeply spiritual again even before <clears throat> i start to share mine like there's there's something about listening and really receiving like seeing you and hearing you we've been talking that about a lot about that about jesus and how mm. he's constantly saying like see hear each other like really yes. see and hear each other and yes. so to have the privilege of you in all your authenticity and honesty while you're you were so fully embodied i mean it, it was obvious that you were having like um your own spiritual experience as you were offering that day i mean you were having some emotional response and so there was something even though you've done it so many times there was something so present um yeah. right and yeah. and so compelling to our spirit in in hearing that yeah. in hearing and seeing you um and I just, I, I find myself more and more uh, curious about the receiving, about the listening. Yes. Well, two things, I, I want to talk about that. That's a really great uh, uh, point. Uh, I want to talk about uh, about the story from a, an acting performance standpoint. And so oftentimes I'll have people who um, perhaps they're in the theater or they are 
theater adjacent or whatever, they'll, they'll ask me, you know, you've performed this thousands of times. How do you continue to do this performance and keep it fresh? Mm -hmm. Actors talk about keeping the performance fresh. You've done the exact same thing a thousand times. How is it always fresh? And I have to say, for me anyway, I try to come to the table um, clean each time. Like it is um, important for me to be absolutely present, present, conscious in the moment and to not um, bring anything else with me into the room. And um, I know that, you know, may sound, I don't know, airy fairy or whatever, yeah. but it's, it is so, so important for me. Uh, and there are, are, are times when, as a performer, it can be a bit of a struggle. Um, I, you know, things can happen. In, mm -hmm. uh, uh, people make commotion in the back of the room. Somebody's cell phone goes off. Uh, mm -hmm. All different kinds of things can happen in a room. But I'm always trying to remember to bring it back. Bring it back. Where are you right now? Right yeah. now, where are you? Be here now with these people. Um, tell your story. And so I try to uh, frame that in that way. I warm up extensively before each presentation. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know, I can't just get up there and stand up there and do it. I do vocal warm ups. I do physical warm ups. I, um, I meditate regularly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a, I've been meditating for, I don't know, 15 years or so. So all of that is a part of my uh, preparedness for, for doing this. And then the other thing you talk about listening. Boy, I so I have a a podcast called Incognito the Podcast, of course, Incognito yes. the Podcast, um, in which I am interviewing um, people from a variety of different fields um, about the ways in which they go about um, creating an inclusive environment, whether it's in their workspace or their communities. And I would say one of the most often reoccurring things that people talk about is deep listening, mm. deep listening. It is so important. Uh, leaders from a, a wide variety of fields um, find that that is one of the most important things to create a, an environment, a workspace in which everyone feels valued, feels belonging, um, feels a part of. And it starts with deep listening. So um, you can hear someone, yeah. um, but you really need to listen deeply in, in, in order to um, to get their whole story, to get their whole persona, their whole, I guess I'll use the word you, their whole spirit. Yes, yeah. their whole spirit, their yeah. whole being. You know, um, I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack in what you just offered. Um, <laughs> and... The, the one thing, though, I, I want to come back to this, um, the sense of being seen and heard and because and, I think it connects really well with this um, deep listening that you just named. Um, one of the things that comes to my attention, having watched your play twice and, and having having read um, one of your books, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, yes. the there's a sense in which being in the audience and experiencing your story as a journey of being seen and heard and not seen and not heard and and how that opens 
others to an awareness of where they are seen and heard and when they haven't been seen and heard and how do they how do they actually um, find their way through that because that that is one of our deep longings as humans right to Mm -hmm. to have um to be seen to to know that we matter and 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 to be seen and heard for who we really are at our core right as you know as we would say spiritual beings <laughs> yes. and, and and i'm just i'm just wondering in in some of the responses that you've had to your play and your books and other work that you've done you know what have you noticed as the effect on people in in their own awareness of that of that deep longing and need that they have to be seen and heard yeah well wow i think the best way to answer that is to i i don't want to throw it back in your, in your <laughs> but i i i guess i would say you think think about the response from people that you've gotten I, I mean, I can talk about you know people who came up to me that that after that after that that afternoon and that evening, mm-hmm. but I'm sure the both of you could talk about the people that have come up to you after that evening and on through up to today, mm-hmm. and have shared with you um, the power of the of the, of the story and of the dialogue, and it 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 gets under people's skins in a way that I, I guess I would say I've never experienced. So <laughs> one of the strange things I've been, so we should probably tell listeners, um, I've been touring this play, this one person play as uh, utilizing it as a catalyst or in the space that's referred to as diversity, equity, and inclusion for going on almost 20 years. So I have been going to corporations such as Boeing and Procter and Gamble and um, Morgan Stanley and law firms and uh, realtor associations and not-for-profits and colleges and high schools and performing the play, again, in a corporate office for people. So, you know, first of all, try to wrap your head around that. Like how often (laughs) have you seen a one-person play in a corporate office? And, and 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 it is still a bit of a challenge for me to get people in the corporate world to wrap their arms around, wait a minute, how is a one-man play going to, you know, further our conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion, or what, you know, and, and, and I think um, in many ways it is a much bigger, broader conversation than diversity, equity, and inclusion, you would agree. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm, you know, getting back to your question is I, I guess what's happened and what I have seen is how people have been moved, as you express, Caroline, to tears, have been um, joyous with their laugh, generous with their laughter, and have been so deeply connected that it's just opened them up like a book afterwards. Mm-hmm. And they've been able to share things. <laughs> and, and again, I have heard the deepest, darkest secrets from people. Oh, sure. Right? 
and 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 it's and and some of it sometimes i feel a little bit like oh are you sure you want to tell me this <laughs> um but it's but i've opened the door for them Absolutely. and I, I am i am um so honored that they feel so comfortable telling me that so again in answer to your question billy i think um i'd throw it back to you and you both could share um the way in which people have come to you following it and how it's opened people up in ways that you didn't expect mm-hmm. yeah because it certainly does uh have a way of drawing people's stories out of them and which is which is their own way of saying um, I want you to hear me too. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, so, I, I, so your question started off, your question started off, um, with, um, the other, with, uh, allowing an, uh, an other to connect, to be seen. And here they are after I tell my story. Now they feel they have an opportunity to be seen, to be heard, to, to, um, be acknowledged in the, in the, in the forward of my uh, book, nobody wants to talk about it. I think I, uh, the dedication says to anyone who has ever felt like an outsider. Mm. Yeah. Well, and there's something about your journey as an example of, you know, knowing what it's like to be seen and heard and, and knowing what it's not like to be seen and heard mm. and, and people having a a deep awareness that you are someone who sees and hears others Mm. and 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 that comes out quite naturally and and powerfully in in the performance um and so i'm i have no doubts that that has a a lot to do with people sharing their own story with you and then feeling like they can go on and share their story with others Right. I mean, that that, too, has been a side effect um, of, of your being here. Mm. I, I think that when when you said, you know, people, it, it opens them like a book. Yeah. Right. It's mm. um, that's a different place of sharing from than an intellectual. Let me tell you about my life. Yes. Right. So yeah. and I and I think that that's the spiritual side. I mean, because what I when you say open you like a book, I think of like the heart opening, just like you said, like when when you spoke with your father, that the play itself has a way of when you really receive it, opening your heart, just like that phone call with your dad for us. And and I do think that there is a deep yearning in humanity to want to share about their life from that place. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's sacred space because you move yes. about this world and, you know, there most places are not safe to share from that place. Right. right? So right. it's not only being opened um, like a book, but then also when you create sacred space because of your the rigor of your authenticity, honesty and embodiment of being present in the moment, then it's like, oh, there's space, there's space for my story, you know, in a a place where, again, when you know that 90 something percent of your life cannot handle the truth or would not welcome (laughs) the truth. I mean, we have family secrets because we know the system can't handle it or we believe that it can't, right? Right. So when there's sacred space to actually share from that deeper place, I mean, 
that's that's sacred ground to me that is so appropriate i i i think about my own um family <laughs> and how this has been a very um uh what how do i have what word do i want to use trying uh, uh difficult journey for for my i'm speaking of my white family in particular mm-hmm. um although there are certainly plenty of secrets in my black family as well and i guess what i want to say about this is that the families as much as we think that we are so we're closest to our family members is probably what we think what's my family their family I'm, I'm, family. This, I'm very close and there are certainly families where there are not close people but but we think of our family as being perhaps the people that we're closest with but in actuality we're not sharing some of these really deep deep things with them these sacred things as you said um and I think that um, by sharing my story in this way, it gives people agency to be able to um, feel uh, like they can share their story in a way that is deep and meaningful to them, um, in which they haven't had that with their families, mm-hmm. which is a common thing. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to ask you to reflect on something that um been bubbling up especially um especially relative to what you just talked about with families and secrets and how we don't really talk about some of these um really deep important spiritual matters um with families with our families and and it, and it has to do with a um an understanding of reverence that i recently came across and and I'd never thought about this. Um, and it's, you know, in the Episcopal Church, we talk a lot about reverence for the earth, reverence for others, reverence for life. And and this definition of reverence that I came across is um, a love for the unknown. A love for the unknown and an inner vigilance toward a consciousness of the heart. And so inner vigilance, meaning this kind of um, really taking everything into um, the space of my heart and seeing everything from a place of heart consciousness. Mm. But the but love for the unknown. And, and the reason I think that connects so much with families is because our families tend to have goals <laughs> tend, tend to have um known and unknown conscious and unconscious you know yeah. we we tend to have these either unnamed or well-named specified ends and goals within our families and i'm and i'm curious if it's those kinds of goal-oriented lives that that keeps us from a kind of reverence of one another so that we're reluctant to share so that we're reluctant to actually um enter a place that's we don't know where the outcome is we don't know how it's going to end so the are you saying like the unknown if the unknown is present then it would defy or it's perceived that it would defy the goals 
can't ha- you can't have both of those. Right. I mean, I think I think that's what it feels like in a family system. Yeah. Because um, if it if you don't know where it's going to end up, you know, I think I think families can tolerate a little bit about. Well, we don't know how we're going to get there, but we're getting here. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's a little bit of tolerance for we're not sure how it's going to work it out, but it's going to work out to this end. Mm-hmm. And but reverence in this regard is is not knowing exactly where it's headed or what's going to happen, but but we're going to figure it out together, mm-hmm. and we're going to do so from a place of heart consciousness with deep love and compassion for each other as we journey along. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got a little bit off course there, but I, I'm wondering, I'm wondering about um, this understanding of reverence, um, maybe connecting it to families and that sort of goal oriented and how your work um well, how you might reflect on this, given the work that you've been up to? Well, f- first of all, I, 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 it made me think a lot what you what we just what you just talked about in terms of families and goals and things like that. It made me think a lot about the work of Joseph Campbell when he talks about duty. Mm. Yeah, mm. how people feel this duty to do this or be this way or you you're the it is your duty as the father to be this and to and so i i i I think a lot about what he uh writes about in uh his work about duty um when you first write just the word the unknown to me makes me think about kind of how i in a way got on this path Mm. so i used to uh teach uh acting and uh improvisation and other uh theater skills and directed some plays and whatnot and um one of the axioms in uh improvisation uh is um is to say yes to anything yeah. So the 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 sentence the 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 act the axis is yes and because if you say if you're up on stage with another actor and and now okay here's the thing you're up on stage you don't have any written lines you have no written lines you don't have a map you don't know where you're going one of the scariest places to be for an actor. And so if while you're up on stage and things are happening and someone says, look, there's a turtle and you say, no, that's a lizard. Well, you've just put a a break in the action. You say, yes. And it's a turtle without legs or whatever it might be. (laughs) In other words, you have a place to go. You are accepting and adding to it. We try not um, to talk about animal cruelty on the podcast. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to the uh, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, uh, and and I and and when I talk to students, actually, this is such a great thing because I um oftentimes I I work with um, high school students in this uh, acting program at uh, uh, summer acting program at Northwestern University, and. Uh, 
and I would talk to them about improv and uh, lots of their faces would be, you could just see the fear. You could feel the fear in their faces. <laughs> they, not a lot of them have a lot of improv experience. And, um, and it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's a frightening place to be. You don't have, don't have lines. You don't know where it's going to go. But I tell them that improv is as simple as having a conversation. You don't know what I'm going to say. And I don't know what you're going to say. We are currently right now engaged in an improvisation. Mm -hmm. Now, I know there's this added thing for particularly for performance of, well, it's got to be funny and there's got to be comedy and all that kind of stuff. But in simple terms, we are having an improvisation right now. Yeah. It's that easy. Just let yourself engage in a conversation into what? The unknown. Mm. And so I think um, having had that training and then walking into my <laughs> my story, my life, my journey, and allowing it to wash over me with that um training, that background of yes and what's next. Um if you if you go and read the um the memoir of which the 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 play is is in there it's just mm -hmm. the memoirs got a lot more stories actually as i tell people there are so many wild stories in the memoir that did not make it into the play only because i only have a certain amount of time to tell the story in in play form um that it just one thing after another kept happening to me crazy thing one crazy thing after another and it was just being open to that journey and i i will refer back and come full circle with this um because that's what campbell talks about um he there's a a beautiful a proverb he talks about as you go the way of life you will come to a great chasm jump it's not as wide as you think mm. There's, I, I hear you saying there's, there's not as much to fear as we so often perceive. That is correct. And when it comes to our relationships and being in dialogue, I mean, may, maybe improvisation really is the, is, <laughs> is the, is the best way to really think about it. I mean, and, and this is something that's, you know, been challenging, I think, in the Christian West, especially because we we've lost sight of the reality that all of creation is a grand divine improvisation. Like mm. God is God is constantly improvising. You know, mm. there's there's no set end in terms of um how God is going to accomplish whatever God accomplishes because God has chosen to work with the universe. God has chosen to um, work with us humans and, and we're not always good at kind of following rules, orders, doing it, doing it just so, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and so there's a, there's a certain kind of a divine comfortability with the unknown mm. that, that we're always trying to catch up to. Yes. And, and maybe really thinking about 
um, improvisation as an integral aspect of dialogue is is a really helpful way to way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I bring it back to, and we may get to this, but to one of the tools that I use, and that is get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that uh, for many people, that sounds like a crazy thing. <laughs> Why would I want to be comfortable being uncomfortable? But yeah, so so maybe let's um, just talk briefly about your your seven tools. I don't know if we need to go into each one. We can post sure. these or um, provide people a link to them on your website. But sure. maybe give us a little sense of where these tools came and. Um, um, and you, you're welcome to walk through them as well. But um... sure. well, I, 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 as I lay out in the, the book, uh, nobody wants to talk about it. Race, identity, and the difficulties in forging meaningful conversations. Uh, each chapter in the book is um, a, consists of stories of me on the road um, doing what I do, you know, performing the play and then conducting dialogues and um, how different things that happened within these particular stories led me to each one of these tools. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, I start off with the, I, I, I would call it the most obvious tool, which is, you know, uh, share your story. Um open up and listen and share our stories that's where we start that's the that's the initial point of uh of contact um yeah and then we open up from there by um you know not judging differences and um as i said getting comfortable being uncomfortable and um and one that i think um it kind of gets to the crux of of the larger picture which we have touched on a little bit and which we have touched on outside of this podcast quite a bit which is um we can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable yeah um we're in a space in our world especially in our country in which um we don't know how to have these conversations in which um we may not see eye to eye on things um, but we are allowing ourselves to bring anger and hatred and divisiveness and all other manner of bad treatment, ill treatment to the table. And uh, as I say, you know, once you become disagreeable with someone, the conversation stops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I am, I guess, of the larger picture of the things that I'm trying to accomplish is is just that we have to get back to being able to have conversations with people who don't look like us, who don't sound like us, who don't have the same political ideology, who see the world differently than us. We have to be able to do that in a way in which we still understand that, in fact, we have more in common than we have different. And so, therefore, let's... um, let's not allow our anger and our hatred to to be at the forefront of those conversations. Yeah. You know, one of your tools that I, um, just because you, the way you crafted it, it makes it so, um, um, I don't know, so clear in a way that I just, I had not um, been able to um, spell out in the same way before, which is, um just because my experience is not yours doesn't mean it's not real 
Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and so you, one of your tools yeah. is recognizing that there's not, there's no, there's no one way to have um, a conversation. There's no one way to, there's no one experience of something. Yeah. We, I think, you know, we could call it whatever we want. We could call it, we, we're in silos, we're in bubbles, we're whatever. Um, and I think often when we hear someone's experience or someone's um, you know, experience and it doesn't match with ours mm-hmm. and suddenly that, well, that can't be. No, because it's my, it's my world. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my world. It's our world. And we have lots of different, you know, I, I think about this quite often. um, And I challenge um, audiences often um, after the play, I ask, you know, um, what does it, what does it mean to be an American? And I think when I ask that question, I also um, state, you know, I understand and we should all understand that if I ask that question in a room of 20 people, we will get 20 different answers. Yeah, for sure. And, and that is what makes us American, mm. is that we all are American and yet we all don't see Americanism or American as the same. And, and yet we have um, allowed that to divide us rather than to embrace that rich tapestry of, of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of um, Ivan Illich, the radical Catholic thinker of the 20th century. He said, We've got to start learning how to receive people for who they say that they are, mm. rather than yeah. ju- rather than judging everybody as you were just sort of spelling out as from yeah. my experience, you know. Yeah, I mean, I say it's it's kind of an interesting phenomena when you think about it. Like the way that we see ourselves is quite often not the way that other people see us, and yet it's my identity. It's not yours. And so part of the problem is that we are not sharing that with other people and other people are not asking questions of us in order to find out who we are. And so, again, deep listening comes into play, but also uh, asking questions comes into play. Yeah. Wow. Um, There's there's so much. (laughs) I know. It's just amazing. I I think I think we could probably go on for another hour or so, uh, but I (laughs) I want to be mindful of uh, your generous time and, and what a pleasure it's been to have some good conversations, some good dialogue with you and and uh, especially having had you here in Knoxville and in, in Ascension, sharing your story and and knowing that um, you're going to be back with us um, yes. at some point and at, at least sometime in April. Yeah. And so yeah. we're looking forward to that. Um, but uh, until then, so where where can people find your books and learn more and, and get connected with you if they want to? Sure. Thank you for that. Um, you can go to the website, which is incognito the play, all one word, incognito the play.com. And you can find out all things incognito. <laughs> <laughs> incognito the play.com. There, there, there's a there's a tab for books. 
The first book is the memoir um, Incognito, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. You can purchase that there at, uh, at the site and you'll get a signed copy. Uh, the second book is also there. Um, uh, nobody wants to talk about it. Race identity and the difficulties in forging meaningful conversations. Um, there's tools there that you can see. I have a, uh, I guess there's a tour, a list of where I'm performing, where I'm being um, mm. speaking. Most often those are closed to the public, but oftentimes, as was in Knoxville, they're open to the public and um, people can join in there. Um, the podcast is also available on the website. Its um, title is Incognito The Podcast. That's the full title. So if you yeah. went to uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever the platform you listen on and you typed in Incognito The Podcast, you would find it there. Um, you can write me there. I answer all emails. I'm I'm easy to find. <laughs> That's great. And, uh, and available. So I, I would look forward to having another conversation like this, perhaps um, after the next time I visit uh, Knoxville. We could do oh, that. that would be delightful. Yeah, that'd be yeah. wonderful. That'd great. be great. Well, Michael, thanks again so much. Um, we look forward to seeing you back in Knoxville and thanks for the good work that you do. It's made a lasting impact here. And, and I know it's making an impact um, in so many, the li lives of so many others. So thank you for your good work. It's a pleasure, real pleasure. A reminder that you can come and see Michael Fosberg's one-man play, Incognito, on Tuesday, March 21st at 7 p.m. at the Bijou. And again, there's live music featuring the Knoxville Opera Company's Gospel Choir. You don't want to miss it. Even if you saw it before, and back in January when he was here, the music is going to add such another element. So everybody, please come. So come ready to engage. Register online at a southerncityspeaks.org or go to the Bijou Theater website. Register online. Again, it's a free event. We hope to see you there.